All right, back in Samuel and chapter 2, as I read a minute ago this passage, we uh, see in this long text the fall of the house of Eli as the priest of God, as we read, and God announced this to him through an unnamed prophet, just a man of God, he's called in, in verse 27. Let me kind of remind you of uh, his house and why this is happening. You go all the way back to Egypt when the Israelites were still in Egypt, Jacob's uh, family came down to Egypt and his 12 sons. And of course, the tribe of Levi would be the tribe out of which God was going to take the priests. So all the other 11 tribes, they have their promised land, they have their responsibilities, but Levi, the Levites, would also be the priests. Well, then in the days of Moses, Moses had a brother named Aaron. And as God chose Moses to lead the Israelites, he chose his brother Aaron to be the head of the priesthood. So out of the Levites, there are the Aaronic priest, uh, Levites. So all of the Levites have responsibilities to do things. Some of them just simply picked up the furniture of the tabernacle and carried it, uh, packed things up or unpacked, and there was a lot of that going on uh, across the desert. But those of Aaron's family within the Levites, they were the priests. Now, Aaron had four sons, and you remember that the first two, uh, named Nadab and Abihu, offered a wrong sacrifice, strange fire, it's called, before God, and God killed them on the spot. You remember that episode uh, in the Old Testament. And so Aaron had two other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. So all of the priests are going to now come from either Eleazar or from Ithamar. Well, Eli was a descendant of Ithamar, and uh, the, the priesthood kind of went back and forth from family to family, but now it had landed in the, in the descendants of Ithamar. And at the same time, uh, well, actually before Eli, uh, one of the sons of Eliezer was named Phinehas. And you remember when Balaam caused the Israelites to sin and they brought fornication into the camp of Israel that Phinehas, a descendant of Eleazar, he was a priest, uh, was so zealous for the things of God that he went and took the life of those who brought that into the camp, and God honored him. As a matter of fact, I think 25,000 people died because of that sin until Eleazar put an end to it. So Eleazar is blessed on the side of, or uh, Phinehas is blessed on the side of Eleazar, excuse me, and Eli is now under the, the side of Ithamar. Well, you go on down a little bit farther, and I want you to turn to your right to 1 Kings chapter 2. You're in 1 Samuel. So two books over, 1 Kings chapter 2. And you have now a few generations beyond Eli, quite a ways beyond Phinehas. And notice uh, verse 27. You have a priest named Abiathar. He's also a descendant of Ithamar and of Eli. So it says in the days of Solomon, Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spake concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. 
So God had promised Eli, I'm going to remove your descendants from the priesthood. They will no longer be priests. And in the days of Abiathar, God accomplishes that to the end. Now, in the same chapter of 1 Kings 2, look over at verse 35. And the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in the room over the host. And this is an important name. Zadok, the priest, did the king put in the room of Abiathar. And Zadok is from the descendants of Eliezer, where Phinehas is a descendant of. So God then takes it in his hand to remove the side of Ithamar, where Eli was the priest, put it back into the hands of the descendants of Eliezer, blessed because of what Phinehas had done, and now Zadok becomes the priest, and his family is a priest all the way down to the time of Christ. So back in our text now, uh, we see that God promises this Eli because of their, this, his sin and because of the sins of his family, that he, the shame that he brought uh, to the worship of God, God promises that he is not going to honor him anymore. As a matter of fact, in verse 35 of our text in chapter 2, it says, I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house. He shall walk before mine anointed forever. Now, for a time being, that will be Samuel. But you have to remember that Samuel was not uh, an, uh, of the family of Aaron. So Samuel was not qualified to be the priest, but God used him in the place when there was no priest. He was a Levite but he was not the house of Aaron. So there's a period of time after Eli where there is no priest, and Samuel acts as the priest and as the king and as the judge of Israel and everything until Abiathar comes along, about a 50-year span. But not only that, this verse 35 probably looks beyond Samuel to Zadok the priest where God says, I'll raise me up a faithful priest in the days of David and Solomon, and he will, I will build his house, and God did build the house of Zadok then all the way down to the time of Christ. And not only that, it may look even further than that to Jesus Christ himself and be a prophetic statement of the fact that uh, one day we will have in the perfect man a prophet, priest, and king, and that will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so God is showing this now from the time of Eli all the way forward even to Jesus Christ. I want to back up to verse 30 and I want to speak to you today from just that verse as a matter of fact just from the end of that verse in kind of a different way than I normally do. There's a statement at the end of verse 30 that says, for them that honor me I will honor. and They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This is a universal principle. This can be as true in your life as it was in Eli's life. You can honor the Lord and he will honor you. Or you can despise the things of God and you will be lightly esteemed. I'll come back, of course, to that word uh, in, in a, a little bit. And so it's an important thing. An, an older writer named Stuart Holden once said this, to honor God does not necessarily imply doing great things for him. It is rather the consistently maintained attitude of the heart 
which refers every choice to his judgment, measures every value by his standard, and endeavors to make every incident of life contribute towards the glorifying of his name. That's to honor God. It doesn't matter whether uh, you are a, a pastor, a preacher, a deacon, a, a, an elder, or whatever you are. It's whether you are honoring God in your life by what you are doing. And so we have this statement, Him, them that honor me, I will honor. But they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Do you recognize that verse from something else? I don't know if uh, you, you know or follow the life of Eric Little in the uh, movie that was made, Chariots of Fire, a true story about uh, a man named Eric Little, a Scotsman, but he was born in China to missionary parents. And uh, he came back to Scotland uh, for schooling and for training. And while he was there, uh, he, it ended up that he participated in the 1924 Paris Olympics, and that's what this old movie, The Chariots of Fire, were about, a true story about a missionary kid and about this missionary that uh, wanted to go back to Scotland as a missionary. But he had uh, one blessing and one fault, and that is he could run fast. And he, he was very fast, and he would often enter local races and win every time and so forth. And as a matter of fact, he became so well-known that finally he was brought to the attention of the, of the uh, Olympic Committee and uh, asked to run, and he did. He qualified. And so he's headed to uh, Paris uh, to the 1924 Olympics. Well, Eric Little uh, was a devout believer a believer in the mode of the old Puritans who also believed that Sunday was a Sabbath and that you could not work on the Sabbath or play on the Sabbath or do things like participate in sports on the Sabbath. True story. So on the boat, on the way to Paris, he is informed that his race, which was what we call a 100-yard dash, but is 100 meters, would be run on Sunday. And he informed the committee, I can't do that. They said, what do you mean you can't do it? This is the Olympics. Of course you can do it. And, no, I can't do it. God said, I can't, and I will not. And that caused a problem, of course, that they had to work out. Well, it, the way they worked it out is uh, that they uh, offered him the 400-meter race on Monday and switched with the fellow. Somebody else ran the 100-meter on Sunday. And Little said, okay. And he did that. Well, when uh, he came to the track, uh, a, an American runner named Jackson Schultz came up to him with a small piece of paper just before the 400-meter run on Monday, handed him that piece of paper, and in the old movie it shows he opens it up, and it says this, in the old book it says, he that honors me, I will honor, wishing you the best of success always. And Little grabbed the paper and held it in his hand during the whole race. An interesting thing about that race is that uh, a 400-meter race, he was only supposed to run the 100-meter. He's running 400 meters, and on the first turn of the race, he got knocked down, fell to his knees on the track. He got, everybody thought, well, that's that for him. He got back up, continued to run, Finished the race not only first, but set an Olympic record in that race of the 400-meter uh, run. 
Now, the interesting thing, too, about Little is that he did go back to China as a missionary. And uh, that's what his love was. That's how he honored the Lord. So he married his sweetheart named Annie and uh, went back to China. Well, he, they were there uh, in their older days during World War II. This would bring you up to the 1940s. And in 1943, he was captured by the Japanese who had invaded parts of China and at the time was able to send Annie and their two kids away, and they made it out of the country and back to Canada, where they lived later. But uh, Eric Little actually died in that Japanese prison camp. And one of the men that was with him in that camp heard his dying words, and his dying words in that Japanese prison camp was, Annie, it's complete surrender. His last words, Annie, it's complete surrender. And that's what he did, isn't it? And yet from those words from Jackson Schultz, uh, it says in the old book, he that honors me, I will honor. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, a few thoughts from this passage, if you will, in, uh, in verse 30 at the end of, of this verse. Matthew Henry, in, in reading this, and you know that I, like, I still like to read the old guy, uh, he said this, The way to be truly great is to be truly good. If we humble and deny ourselves in anything to honor God and have a single eye uh, upon him in it, we may depend upon this promise, he will put the best honor upon us. And then he quotes John 12, 26, which says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And so that is the honoring of God. Psalm 96, 6 says, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty. And so let me give you two thoughts which you have there in the outline in your bulletin. And the one is God honors those that honor him, and the other is, and I'll put it in the biblical way, God lightly esteems those who despise him, and we'll look at that in a minute. Now, I want to tell you that as I preach this message, uh, you know, I have to tell myself, I'm preaching you what's called a textual message. I usually preach an expository message, which means that I take all of my thoughts, both the main points and the subpoints, from various places in the text. Sometimes the text is too long to do that. Uh, sometimes it's inconsequential. So a textual message takes the basic thoughts, the main points, you might say, from a passage, and then expands those in other places of the Bible. That's what I want to do today. A topical message is a topic that is preached from various places wherever in the Bible. This is a textual message. Two thoughts from this, from this verse, of course, that has these two thoughts at the end of it. Him that honor me, I will honor. That's the first thought. Second one is, they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Let's think about the first one, and I want to uh, express these four thoughts. You have just key words there before you. The first is, to the lost people in this world that try to honor God, God will show truth. In other words, there are people who don't know the Lord, 
don't know God through Jesus Christ, and they need to, but if they will honor God, we see in the Scripture many times that God honors them by bringing them the truth so they can find the truth in Jesus Christ. You might do this with me, hold your place there again, and go with me all the way to the book of Acts. And let me just show you three things out of the book of Acts that show this. Acts chapter 10, in the journeys of Paul and now uh, Peter also at Caesarea, there was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. And it says this, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And I have a written in right after that in my verse, but lost. <laughs> he did all of those things, but was a lost man. Not a Christian, not on his way to heaven, on, a way, on his way to a sinner's hell. And yet he honored God in this way. So what did God do for Cornelius? He tells him where to go for help. And he's getting Peter ready to preach the gospel to him. And Peter comes to the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius says, we're all here, verse 33, to hear whatever you've got to say to us from God. Peter preaches the gospel to them. He gets saved and many people in his house. God honored this lost man because he was trying to honor God. Another one that you know well is in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and that's a woman named, uh, uh, what is her name? Uh, Lydia. <laughs> Lydia was a, a businesswoman, you might say, and uh, she was there in Philippi selling her goods, her purple, her dye uh, that she had, and it says in verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, chapter 16 of, of Acts, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened that she attended the things that were spoken of by Paul. And back in verse 13, we find out that she was at a prayer meeting. She was at a prayer meeting praying to God, but lost, didn't even know the Lord. God honors her by bringing the apostle to her and letting her hear the gospel. Another one that you know well is in chapter 17, just a page over, and these are the people in Berea. We often name a class the Berean class because of this statement. So in verse 10 of chapter 17, the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, he says, this is Luke recording it, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so, and I have written in after it, but lost. Here are good Jewish people searching their scriptures, but they don't know Christ yet. God is honoring. They are trying to honor God. God is going to honor them. And God brings them, again, uh, the apostle, and he preaches the gospel to them, and they get saved. So my point is, 
that God will honor even the lost people who try to honor him. If they continue to honor him, he will bring them the gospel. Now in Acts 10, it says, Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation them that fear him and work righteousness are accepted with him. That is, uh, he hears them and he brings them truth. So what about the heathen that is over on the backside of the world that hasn't heard the gospel yet and dies without ever hearing the gospel? They're lost. But what if they seek God? What if they, turn, what if they try to find truth? What does God do? He honors them and brings them truth. That's the point of Romans 1.20. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you despise uh, the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? And so these heathen people can still find the gospel of Jesus Christ if they'll seek for it. If they honor God in that way, God will honor them. I think uh, I also uh, found these couple verses about when Paul is preaching on his missionary journey a couple different times. There are women that are saved called honorable women, if you remember. And they get saved, one in Acts 13, 50, uh, devout and honorable women and chief men of the city. And in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, uh, therefore many of them believed also of the honorable women which were Greeks. And of men, not a few. They honored God, God honored them. And so the first thing we see here is that the lost will be honored by God giving them truth. Secondly, to the nations, to kings, God will bless nations. Do you understand that he can do that? Do you understand? Do you remember these verses? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his inheritance. Sure, that refers to Israel but also to any nation, because Proverbs 14 says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so God can bless a nation that honors him, even though that nation may be full of a lot of lost people, even though that nation has its own problems. Those that name God as their God, God will honor them. In Psalm 21, 1 through 5, it says this, The king shall joy in thy strength. O Lord, in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire and has not withholden the request of his lips. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life of thee and thou gavest him uh, life, even length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. God honors the king who honors him. And we see that, of course, in nation's history, don't we? You remember that the Great Reformation happened in the 1500s, and out of it came Germany with all of its great hymn writers and theologians and the Reformation itself that honored God for hundreds of years. God honored them because they honored God. That Reformation spilled over into the Swiss and the Swiss Anabaptists and the Reformers, and uh, God blessed that nation. And then they came to England, uh, where God blessed that nation because of the, uh, of the uh, Reformation 
and the Christianity that happened there. So even God has blessed nations in such a way. And by the way, uh, don't apologize for the Christian heritage that came out of those Western European nations. Occidental, not Oriental, by the way. Those that followed God and honored God. God blessed those nations, and those nations blessed the rest of the world. Nothing to apologize there for. It's a great thing. Our heritage then in America is from those nations. They honored God. God honored them and has even honored us because of it. Thirdly, to believers, God will sanctify. When you honor God, God sanctifies you in your heart. We have uh, many Psalms and many Proverbs spoken to individuals. Psalm 71, 8, Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. Psalm 91, 15, he shall call upon me, God speaking, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. God will bless you in your life when you honor him. Do you know what? We have this process of sanctification in our lives. That is, as we get saved, we're supposed to then honor God with our Christian life, aren't we? We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to uh, get deeper in our spiritual walk. So we find out that uh, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 10. And 1 Corinthians 1 says this, But of him are you in Christ Jesus who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so progressive sanctification, folks, honors God. For you to try to live for God, for you to say, I'm going to honor him with my life, I'm going to honor him with my thoughts, I'm going to honor him with my hands and my eyes and my feet, I'm going to honor him in every way that I can. God will honor you and sanctify you before him. That's an important thing. Today, you who are here listening to me have honored him, number one, by your attendance in his house because he asked you to be here. And you've honored him that way. God will honor you. Your participation in our service, uh, in participating with the saints of God to worship him, your reverence, your appearance, as you have said, I'm coming before the Lord. I will appear the way I should. Your devotion to the Lord, even here in this hour this morning, this is a way that you have honored God, and God will bless you because of it. And then one last thing, number four. There are godly leaders. There, I'm not speaking about the kings of the world now or the nations. I'm speaking about those who lead in the things of God. God will honor because there's one verse, of course, in 1 Timothy 5:17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. And so when God puts us in a place of leadership in the church, Sure, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a deacon, whether it's a teacher, whether it's just an older person who shows example to younger people, uh, God will give double honor to you because you deserve it. I want to show you something also in, in your uh, Old Testament in 2 Samuel. Go all the way almost to the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23, here's the story of David. These be the last words of David, 2 Samuel 23. David, the son of Jesse, the man who God raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spake by me, David says. His word was in my tongue. 
the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, and then said this, he that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. Do you rule over men? Do you have any persuasion over other people as a believer? I think you'd probably do in one form or another. Then do it. You must be, as a matter of fact, David says, just, and you must do it in the fear of God. And if you do that, notice what verse 4 says. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, kind of like this morning, <laughs> as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That's how God sees you. That's how God sees his leaders that rule uh, by being just and ruling in the fear of God. And David said of his own covenant, verse 5, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. That is, his kids didn't always honor him. And so God will honor godly leaders, and that's the way it should be. Let me point out a few things from our first thought here that God honors those that honors them that honor him. Children, honor your parents. Isn't that what the Bible tells you to do? You're to honor those that, that God has put you under. Honor mother and father that your days may be long upon the earth, as, as Moses wrote it. That's what, a way you can honor God, that God will honor you. Youth, marry believers. God said that's his will for you. Marry someone who loves the Lord and loves him as much as you love him and nothing less. And God will honor you and bless you in your life. And families, as far as your home goes, have a godly home. Have a peaceable home. Have a home that, that speaks to God and honors God and reads his word. And in church, make sure your priority, make sure our priority is to honor God in this assembly and God will honor us. And seniors, since we started with the children, seniors, keep your testimony before the Lord. It is your witness to this world. Persevere to the end. Run the good race to the finish line because that God is using you in these, age, in these days to be a witness to others. Keep yourself pure, be generous, be joyful in the Lord. Honor God in these ways, and God will honor you. Now, let me go to our second thought in our outline here, and that is that our verse says, they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Kind of an interesting uh, uh, way to say it. As a matter of fact, let me talk about that a minute. Lightly esteemed. It's almost like a euphemism. That is, it's almost an English way of saying of, of, saying it in a light way, but it's a very serious thing to say, that God would lightly esteem you. And I thought, well, that doesn't speak a lot to me. Let me, let me just give you a detail here for a minute. I, I wanted to look up a little more what, what that meant. I mean, what does it mean that God will lightly esteem? Maybe that's all I want. <laughs> I don't want him to think about me any more than that. No, it, it means something heavy. Well, in the Hebrew Old Testament where this is written from, or let, let me first say, 
I went to other translations, and probably everyone that you're using here today says, uses the same phrase, lightly esteem. Even the NS, NAS and even the ESV and the New King James all keep this phrase, lightly esteem. The only one that changed it is the NIV who reads it, those who despise me will be disdained. They're the only ones that changed it. In the Hebrew text, you can read that, and then the translators of the Hebrew sometimes put words underneath the Hebrew, and they did it in this case, and they translated this, those who despise me will be despised. And yet it's not the same two words. Those who despise me will be despised. And so I went a little farther. You know, there was a time where Hebrew people who spoke Greek translated their Hebrew Bible into a Greek Bible. And I can handle Greek a little more than I can handle Hebrew. So, so uh, I found out that that word lightly esteem comes from the word timi, timé, which is the word Timotheus or Timothy. And the word Timothy means to honor. The, the name Timothy in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, means honor, reverence, respect. So uh, Timothy, you have a good name. Uh, that's what the name means. But in this verse of the Old Testament where they translate it, they put an A in front of it. When you put an A in front of a word, you negate it. And so it's atimao. That is dishonored, non-honored. Translated here, lightly esteemed, but despised. If God does not honor you, what does God do? He punishes you. He doesn't esteem you in a way that you would like. He lightly esteems you. He doesn't give you honor. He takes honor away from you. And so the second warning here, as God gives it through this prophet to Eli, is going to fall upon his head. You did not honor me, and you're about to be dishonored by God. And when he was dishonored by God bricks fell upon him, right? I mean, his house, his family, everything was gone in a moment. So let me give you four thoughts here quickly. Number one, I find that in the scripture, there are those who literally pervert the goodness of God. There, there is the perverted lost, I call them. And God says, I will desert you. And you'll remember the passage from Romans chapter 1. Wherefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. I'm done with you. I've deserted you. Gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And you know that that homosexuality, which is rampant today, which is supposed, our country says should be accepted before God. God says, if you dishonor me in this way, I'm going to dishonor you. I'll give you up. Now that's strong language and the language this world doesn't want to hear, but it's biblical language. And so in the first part, sexual impurity 
brings dishonor from God, the perverted lost find this from God, and God cuts off their avenue to him. Serious, serious business. In chapter 2 and verse 23 of Romans, it says, Thou that makest thy boast against the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? Lawbreakers dishonor God. Lawbreakers say, I'll have nothing to do with the laws of this world, with the morality of this world, with understanding that God gave us right and wrong, and therefore I'm supposed to follow right and not wrong. When you dishonor the laws of God, God dishonors you, Romans 2 says. And so there are those that are, I think, perverted in their lostness, and God deserts. Terrible, terrible situation. Secondly, there are the Christ rejectors. There are those who are rejecting the gospel. They're hearing it. They're thinking about the gospel, but they're going to reject the gospel. And when they do, they dishonor God also in a very terrible way. And I'll read that to you. But let me tell you this. The other day in my reading through the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you remember that, ver that chapters 8 through 10, 8, 9, and 10, speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. It, it compares the Old Testament animal sacrifices with the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it, just as it explains, that priest could not go into the holy place before God without the blood. God would have killed him on the spot. They had to have the blood of those animals in the same way. Jesus Christ could not appear back into the presence of God without the shedding of his own blood. But since he shed his blood, you, if you're going to come before God, must come the same way, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. You dare not go before God without the blood. You dare not die and go into the presence of God without the blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins. You will be condemned forever if you do. It is serious in, in Hebrews 8 through 10. So at the end of Hebrews 10, in verse 29, we have uh, this, uh, these verses uh, described here. How much sorer punishment suppose ye notice these words sorer punishment is that god lightly esteeming someone you better believe it is that god dishonoring someone how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the son of god and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing when a person says no to the salvation that's in Jesus Christ, he's dishonoring the blood of Jesus Christ and God will dishonor him with severe punishment. Then it says, For we know him that saith, Vengeance belongeth to me, I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance? Vengeance from God upon someone who hears the gospel and refuses it? That's what the writer says. Vengeance of God for dishonoring the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Judging? Absolutely. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful thing. And you might remember, by the way, that it was Jonathan Edwards in the, in the 
uh, great revivals of America that preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this was his text. This was the text of his sermon. This is what happens when you fall into the hands of an angry God, when you despise his offering for you, that is the blood of Jesus Christ. So him that despises me, I will lightly esteem, he says. Now, let me shift gears a little bit to number three, to believers. Because those of us who know the Lord as Savior, we know that we are eternally secure. We know that, that we have salvation and will always have it. But again, as I said previously, we're in the process of sanctification. God isn't leaving you just as you are. You didn't get saved and then say, okay, now I'm saved. And so I just go on living my life and no, the blood, the blood covers it all and, and I'm okay. It, it doesn't matter. It does matter. God wants to change you. God wants to make you more holy. God wants to make you more like him. I am holy, be ye holy, God says. And so God is in the process of doing that. And when you say, well, I'm not going to work at that. I'm not going to do that. I don't care about becoming more like God. Then you have dishonored God in that way. And there is a way in which God takes care of his own children. That is, his own believers. One of those ways is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Here Paul is writing to believers in the Thessalonian church. He says, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Christian, do you, do you have uncleanness in your life? God didn't call you to that. God called you to be holy. He therefore that despiseth despiseth not man but God. What, what do you mean despise? Despise the holiness. There are Christians who despise holiness. Did you ever think about that? There are Christians who don't want to be like Christ. There are Christians who just want to be saved and go to heaven and that's it. I don't care about anything else in my life. Despising the holiness of God. And so he says here in this verse, he that despiseth, despiseth not uh, man but God, who hath given unto us his Spirit. But what's the word before that? Holy Spirit. What kind of a spirit do you have in you? A spirit? No. Holy Spirit lives within you. Let me read you one more verse. You know well, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Paul says, I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. I might be disqualified. I've witnessed to others about the gospel of Christ, and yet I'm disqualified because I despise the holiness of God? 1 Corinthians 3.17, If any man, speaking to believers, defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. You dishonor me, I'll dishonor you. Speaking to believers, God will take his chastisement upon you if you think you can live as a believer and despise the temple of God. God will lightly esteem you. And so I'm saying to you that there is a way that even sinning believers this applies to. We can be in a place where we don't honor God. And then lastly, I'll make a broader application to the nations, to the ungodly nations God will judge. You know, there's a phrase in the book of Psalms I'm noticing called the heathen raging. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Uh, Psalm 46, uh, the heathen raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. 
But kingdoms rage against God. Can you believe that? Nations shake their fists at God, rage against God. We'll not have God to reign over us. We'll not do this this way. I wonder if we aren't headed the same way in this country. You know, in Genesis 6, it said, Every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually, so God flooded the world. It started again when the imagination of their thought was raging against God. And then Peter uses that as an example when he says, If God spared not the old world, then don't be surprised if he reserves the unjust to the day of judgment. We know that the Bible says, if we curse Israel, God curses us. When we bless Israel, God blesses us. We know that that is true, and I wonder where we have gone from there. But think, think of those Western countries, folks. Think of those Western countries that honored God and God honored them. Germany in the Reformation through Luther and others honored God, and God blessed that nation with a Christian heritage. And in one generation, they dishonored God, and the Nazis took over, and God judged that nation. Think of the United Kingdom, uh, and not only England, but Scotland and the great uh, revivals of Wales and all of that, honoring God and some of the greatest theologians and preachers the world has ever known. You may not have liked the Elizabethan age in the 1500s with Queen Elizabeth. You may not have liked, uh, of course, the, the uh, age of, of uh, uh, the later... Uh, kings and princes and queens, uh, the Queen Victoria, you, you may say, well, I don't like that Victorian uh, 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 morality, but I like it, and England was blessed because of it. But look what has happened in one generation in the United Kingdom. They're being taken over by paganism. They are so far from God, they can't find their way out. They don't honor God, God will not honor them. What's happening in our country? What's happening when we don't honor God anymore? When we don't have any shame, we don't have any morality anymore, we don't trust in God at all. Will God still honor America? History has shown that he will not. And we need to understand that and take heed. What are some things we can say from this second point? I thought of, I, I thought of Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And I remember that that word falling means stumble. It's an odd word that means stumble. Wherefore he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. God can do that in your life. And then Peter picks up that word in 2 Peter chapter 1 and says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall or literally never stumble. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God will keep you from stumbling. God will walk with you. If you will honor him, he will honor you. You need to be doing that. I trust that you will in your life. Last two things I want to say. To the lost person, to the lost sinner, you're in a perilous situation. Jesus died for you, and you are despising his love for you. You're despising the blood that he shed for you by refusing it. You only have this lifetime to say yes. You only have this lifetime to give your life to him. Judgment is coming, and judgment is sure. And so you're in a perilous situation. Come to him today. And to the believer who is safe and secure, 
but you can stumble. And since it's possible for you to stumble, though salvation is eternally secure, then in this life you can resist God's will, but rather you can honor God's will. Honor Him, and He will honor you and bless you and your children and your grandchildren. And I think we all want that. Stand now with me, if you will. As we've thought about these things and looked at just this one passage and the two statements made in this passage, we need to apply these to our heart and life and to the world around us. Let's pray before God. Father, we've read your word and taken it to heart. And we've wondered even in our own heart if we honor you the way that we should. Oh, Father, we desire to do that. We know that those who honor you, you will honor. We see it from examples in history. We see it from people that we have known. Oh, Lord, make it true in our lives too. Help us, Father, as your believers, not to stumble and not to do things in our lives that dishonor you, but to pour our lives out as a sacrifice before you, wholly acceptable unto God, our reasonable service. And then, Father, we pray for our country. Our heart is grieved for countries who once knew you and once honored you but no longer do. And, Father, uh, this country has honored you. May we continue. Bless our leaders. Bless those who who have a say-so. Help us, Father, in these days in which we live. May we as your children be salt and light in this world in, in which we live. And so, Father, I pray for those who don't know Christ as Savior, anyone who may have heard this message and my voice and the, and the words from your Scripture, that they would not despise the blood of Jesus Christ any longer, but turn to you in saving faith. So, Father, work your will in our way. Have your, your uh, will in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our country. And may you be honored. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing a song of invitation as we do. Of